Hey, Shine Church. Dan and Julie Warhola here. One of our favorite Christmas traditions is actually to grab a guitar, bake some cookies, and go caroling down our road and just enjoy our time with our neighbors and our family together. We really love this tradition because um, it gives us an opportunity to connect with our neighbors, meet people we haven't met before. It's also a great opportunity to share the love of Jesus. And uh, it can be kind of funny because they're they're standing there and we're unexpected. And um, a lot of times they open the door and we're singing and they're like, okay, are you guys done? Are you done? Are you done? Uh, And then finally... um, we finish and they clap and it's great. And we think sometimes it's a little bit burdensome, but ultimately they really enjoy it. They mention it throughout the year and we just love the opportunity to go around and uh, bless our neighbors that way. We just love it. And it's really great for the kids, too, because the children get to see uh, the response of the neighbors. They get to connect with people they may not necessarily connect with elderly. Or um, people that live by themselves. And so it's really a great opportunity, and we love it. From our family to yours, we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye now. Well, as Pastor uh, Dan and Amy have said, Merry Christmas to all of you and welcome to Shine Church, but welcome also to our Advent season. And this is something that uh, we're super excited to share together. You know, Advent is something that typically takes place within the family. And I believe it's no uh, uh, coincidence that God has led us to just participate together as the family that we are. We hope you feel like the people around you in this room, we are family together. And I just believe that God has something very special for us as as we look forward to Christmas and to celebrating Jesus' birth together as family and enjoy the fun and the anticipation that a family can enjoy together as we love one another. So before I jump into the message for this weekend that I think you're going to uh, uh, enjoy and, and be challenged with, wanted to just take a couple of minutes and talk about Advent, what Advent is. Um, on your seat or on the seat next to you, you probably found a little booklet, an Advent booklet, and uh, we're hoping you will take that with you, maybe one per family, or, or if you want a couple of them for whatever reason, go ahead and do that. But um, our hope is that we can just be enjoying this together at home and then also here on the weekend services and our times together on the weekend. And so, what that does, it explains a little bit of the history of Advent. I'm going to talk about that. It also then has uh, each of the meanings of the candles that we will be lighting on our weekend services, and it explains those. There's a list of scripture readings uh, for each week. So, if you want to gather, you know, corral your kids or your friends or whoever you might want to do this with and actually read those scriptures each day of the week in preparation for the following weekend. Um, We encourage you to do that. There's even a Christmas carol that goes along with the theme of the candle that will be lit that week. And uh, last but not least, there's like a kid's calendar that you can download and print out if you want to do that. And of course, a list of resources that we uh, drew from and you can certainly uh, read further if you're interested in finding out more about Advent. Um, the uh, Advent actually started, here's something I'm actually excited about. How many of you guys know I was born and raised in Spain? Okay, so Advent actually started in Spain and France, but we don't care as much about those guys. Okay, back, <laughs> sorry, all those listening from France and around the world, we love you. Okay, <laughs> 
Way to alienate everybody in the first three minutes. Okay. Um, it actually started in the third and fourth centuries uh, as a ritual or a practice that the church decided to do to prepare people for water baptism as followers of Jesus. When people would say, I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to put my faith in Christ. I want to be baptized and truly let the world know that I want to follow Jesus. They would have a 40-day period where they would be praying. They'd be fasting even. They would be repenting. They would be, you know, just asking God to really purify and sanctify them to, to be a follower of Jesus. And then they would experience water baptism. And that season of looking forward to their baptism, uh, it would actually celebrate the magic coming and visiting Jesus. It would celebrate Jesus's baptism in water, and it would celebrate his first miracle in the little town of Cana, where he turned the water into wine. So they were reflecting on these three moments of Jesus' life and looking forward to that. Actually, the word advent means arrival or coming. And uh, so it's, it's anticipating and looking forward to and preparing for a coming, in this case, the coming of Jesus Christ. But here's something interesting, is that initially Advent wasn't even about celebrating Christmas. It wasn't even about looking back at the coming of Christ in Bethlehem. It was actually all about looking forward to Jesus' second coming. How many of you guys know Jesus has made a promise to us to come back for his bride? And so believers throughout the centuries were using Advent as a time to remind themselves of the blessed hope that we have that Jesus is going to return for us all. But fast forward to uh, 1839, there was a German minister, a Lutheran minister, who worked in a mission for children, and he grabbed a cart, a cartwheel? Is that right? Yeah, a cartwheel, like a big wood cartwheel, and he decided to uh, put 20 uh, small red candles on it, and four large uh, white candles. And the 20 red candles were for each of the weekdays in December, and the four large white candles were for the Sundays in December. And so he would lead the children through lighting a candle each and every day in anticipation, in hope, before celebrating the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And so obviously, gradually those two things are hope for Jesus' second return and the hope that we share and the beauty of celebrating how he came as a baby 2,000 years ago, those two things came together in the month of December. And so oftentimes, the first couple of weeks are actually taken to look forward to his second return. And then the second two weekends nearest to Christmas, we actually reflect together on God's faithfulness in coming as a baby, as our Redeemer, as our Savior. So that's a little bit, obviously you can see we've got uh, a wreath. Uh, wreaths begin to be made around that time, the 1800s, I believe. And um, you'll see that there's evergreens typically that are a part of them. And that symbolizes life coming out of winter, out of a time of cold and, and perhaps death in many ways. There's life. We see that they're decorated with berries or with holly, and that's red. What do you think that might remind us of? Jesus' blood, his sacrifice for us, absolutely. That's there. We've got some pine cones, and that can symbolize new life, right, as those seeds are coming forth and multiplying. And so I believe that it's just a beautiful symbol. I want to encourage you, if you want to actually have a wreath in your home, uh, the ladies is actually doing a craft night this Wednesday night at Shine, and they're going to be uh, receiving instruction on how to make your own Christmas wreath. And so if you want to do that, your Advent wreath. So if you want to be a part of that, <clears throat> do that. If there's no more space in that, I'm sure you can go out and, and buy one. But we're just going to be uh, celebrating together as family, like I said, with this Advent wreath. So uh, we want to talk about this weekend, the first candle of Advent. Each one of these candles has a significance. The first one 
symbolizes hope. It's called the prophet's candle. And I believe that we can, we can understand why it would be called hope because God had spoken to the prophets as early as 700 years before Jesus actually came, like Isaiah, and told them, hey, I'm not gonna leave you in this mess that you find yourselves in. I know that other countries have come and oppressed and others have, have beaten you down and, and that the life that you're living is not the fullness of what you know I've called you into but I'm gonna send my son as a savior. You can count on that. And God made promises to them. And so those prophets were the ones who received those promises, obviously shared them with others in their community and who clung to those promises and, so, and, and, and looked forward in hope, believing that God would be true to his word. And I believe that God is calling us to that same hope this weekend. So I think um, God wants us to take a few minutes together this morning and look at three keys that unlock the power of hope in our lives. Three keys that unlock the power of hope. Would you agree hope is a very, very powerful thing? It's frail, but it's hard to kill. Any Prince of Egypt, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston fans? Okay, no, sorry. Hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Anyway, sorry, one of my favorite songs with a lyric about hope. Someone has said these words, you can live for weeks without food, you can live for days without water, you can even live for minutes without air, but you can't make it five seconds without hope. Would you agree with that? Hope is an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. It's a game changer in our lives. And I believe that God wants us to understand together how to unlock its power and how to live in the fullness of it. So are you ready to jump in? Let's do it. Okay, so the first secret that I believe God wants us to understand about hope is that it's personal. Hope is personal. What do I mean by that? I mean that, would you agree with me that, that hope is always based on a promise or something someone has said will happen or they will do? Would you agree with that? And would you also agree that if hope is based on a promise, the promise is only as strong as the person making it? Yeah? It's only as strong as their word. It's only as strong as their integrity. It's only as strong as their character. Correct? Correct? And so I believe that God is, first of all, wanting us to understand that hope, more than attaching ourselves to a specific outcome, oh, I hope I get this promotion. Oh, I hope this, this person is the one for me and we end up getting engaged and married. Oh, I hope, you know, uh, we make it through the holidays without getting into a fight with that relative. Oh, I hope, right? We have all these specific outcomes we try to attach ourselves to, but I believe that God wants us to know first and foremost, hope is actually about a person, it's very personal because it's about the person making the promise. Now, Pastor Dan and I um, have the privilege, we, we do this together. He actually, I owe him all of this little side business that I do, um, and that is officiating weddings. We're on Thumbtack, and we both do that uh, with couples both inside, but many couples outside the church, and I've had the privilege over the last three or four years to officiate more than 100 weddings, and it's just so cool to be able to stand with a bride and a groom at the altar as they are there getting ready to commit their lives to each other. You see the love in their face. You see the excitement, sometimes the nervousness, but you know what I always see in those couples is hope. Do you agree? There's always hope there that, that their dreams, that the love that they feel for each other will truly play out, that, that, that life is going to be a beautiful experience as they share it together. But I believe that there's something that we find in the Jewish tradition and the Hebrew tradition about the betrothal and the marriage process that is even more enlightening than oftentimes what we see around us today. And I wanted to share that with you real quickly, if that's okay. 
Uh, in the Hebrew tradition, what would happen when a young man found a woman that he wanted to pledge his life to and wanted to become betrothed with? Uh, he would actually start writing on a scroll a, a, a list of promises that he wanted to make to that young lady. And that was literally a marriage contract. And so he would write, you know, oh, she's so beautiful, I love her. Okay, if you marry me, I will provide three pots, two skillets, and four wisps. If you marry me, <laughs> you're like, oh, no. Okay, I know, it's 2019, but you know, think back a few hundred years. Okay, that was a big deal back then. Okay, um, you know, if you marry me, I will put a roof over your head and that has two little drapes and two little curtains, you know, that's facing a lovely garden. You know, I will give you a, connection of, a collection of Russian dolls. Just seeing who my movie people are. Okay, yeah, and he would write down, write all of these lists of promises trying to sweeten the pot, trying to say, girl, come on, you know you want this. If you let me be your man, mm -mm -mm, you're gonna live like a queen. Woo, come on, you know, and he would sweeten it. So he would sit there and write all these promises down. And when he had really just completed it, thought, okay, you know, this is, I think this is gonna win her over. Then he would go and knock at her door and in the presence of her family, he would read those promises that he's making to her. And then she would kind of have a chance to think about it. And it wasn't forced, but she would have a chance to think about it. And if the bride felt that he was a man of his word, if the bride felt that he was trustworthy, if the bride decided that she wanted to place her hope in his promises that he was making to her, then she would take from a goblet filled with wine and she would drink. And that would symbolize saying, yes, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that the promises that you're making to me, you have the power and the will and the commitment to fulfill those in my life. I believe that my life will be better with you and I'm putting my hope in your promise. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And here's what happened. From that moment when she accepted that began a period of no less than one year where the groom would go away from there probably like skipping and you know, woohoo, you know. Dancing, you know, kind of like Hitch after that first kiss. And, um, or not Hitch, but, you know, Albert Brenneman. Anyway, and uh, I don't know why all these movie quotes are coming to me. It's a Sunday morning anointing. Um, but he would go, and he would go to start preparing a place for her. And so oftentimes it wasn't even a standalone house as we would, might have nowadays, but oftentimes it would be adding rooms to his father's house where he grew up. But it would be adding on and building extra rooms. Why? So that he would have a place to go and get his beautiful betrothed and bring her so that they could enjoy wedded bliss together. So what does God want us to understand about this? Psalm 130 verse five says these words, if you can pull it up. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his what? In his word. Can you picture the groom writing that contract out for the bride and the bride having a choice to say, do I hope in his word? Do I believe he's faithful and true? If so, I will drink that cup and we will be betrothed together. I believe that the first key to unlocking the power of hope in our lives is that we understand it's all about a person. It's personal. It's about Jesus. He's the one who's making the promises to us and he has the power to make them come to pass. Do you believe that? All right. Uh, let's talk about, uh, let me think about this real quick. Hold on one second. Yes, ready for the second one? Okay, let's talk about the second one. The second secret of unlocking the power of hope is um, that 
uh, hope is a verb. Hope is a verb. Any English teachers in the house? Okay, oh, there you go, Sherry. I am kind of the office grammar nerd, and once in a while I get to proofread emails that go out and things like that. Everybody gives me a hard time about it. But I'm hoping for those two of you in the room that are into grammar that this will help you remember it. Because the first one is really hope is what? An adjective, right? It's personal. But this one is that hope is a verb. What do I mean by that? It's a choice we can make. It's something that we can choose to do, and it's an action that we can take. Let me take you real quickly to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. It says these words, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. Perhaps you're already finding yourself weary this Advent season, after Black Friday, after cooking on Thanksgiving, whatever it might be, after, you know, the, the, the dread of, of a bad experience with family or thinking about what lies ahead this month. He says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But listen to this. But those who, what? Those who? Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Is that a beautiful promise for us? I believe that God wants you to hear that in your spirit. This is his intention for you this Advent season, is that you would not be weak or weary, but that you would experience a renewal of strength in your heart, in your entire being. And that's gonna happen how? as we wait or hope on the Lord. And here's what's cool about that word, hope in the Lord. In the Hebrew, do you want to know what that word means? Yes? Okay. You already know, Pastor Kim. Ah! Okay. That word in the, uh, the Hebrew means, and I'm going to find it real quick. Well, it means this. <clears throat> it means to bind together, possibly by twisting. That's the root of that word, to hope. It means to bind together, possibly by twisting. And I don't know if you have had uh, planted a tree in your backyard or in your front yard or whatnot. We did at our property in Highlands Ranch. And when you plant a young sapling, one of the things that they encourage you to do is to put a stake in the ground near it, perhaps even at an angle. And then what do you do? You kind of take that and part of it and you bind it to that tree and then you bind it to the stake, right? Why? Because that keeps it growing straight. Now, I'll be honest with you. We had a windstorm in Highlands Ranch. It actually broke my stake <laughs> where it was being held, and I never repaired it. <laughs> so now if you go by 9919 Chatsworth, you're going to see a tree that's kind of like this. You can thank me for my bad decision 14 years ago. But the point of it is this. Hope is a choice. We have the choice to actively bind ourselves by twisting to whom? The one who's made the promises to us. It's something we can do. We're not powerless. I think sometimes when it comes to hope, we think we're just kind of like a passive, like, well, I'm just kind of sitting here, you know, hoping I will get smitten by hope, you know, this Advent, hoping that just lightning falls and the planets align. And No, God is saying, I have empowered you to make the decision to bind yourselves to my promises. Bind yourselves to my goodness. Bind yourselves to what I've told you is my heart for you. And if we do that, it releases 
the power of God in our lives. Now, what, let's talk about this real quick. What is a way that uh, if someone asks you, how do I bind myself to God's promises? How do I, what does this actually look like in my day-to-day life? What's a practical way of just tying myself to the goodness of God and to what God has said in his word? Anybody? Yes. Know his word, right? Absolutely. That's really where it begins. You know there's 7,000 promises in God's word? Think about that. Do you know how many laws there are in the Old Covenant? 613. I was talking to Mason and Andrew last night. We never did the full calculation, but that's like, you know, 4.927367. More promises than there actually, it's probably way more than that, like 10 times or whatever, right? 12 times, 11 times. More promises than there were even commands. Because God wants us to know he cares about us. If we know his word, that's the way we bind ourselves. Melanie, did you have something? Mm-hmm. Meditate throughout your day. Think about it, right? Yeah, that's good. Somebody else? Mason. Woo, come on. Living in remembrance of what he's already done. Looking back. Isn't that what we're doing at Advent? We're looking back at the first coming, at the faithfulness of God in fulfilling those promises. And then what does that do in your heart, right, Mason? Propels us forward. The same God who is faithful here, guess what? He's going to be faithful here. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Somebody else? How do you do this? What does this look like in your life? Yes, Naomi. Woo, claiming it. Okay, what does that give us an example? How do you claim a promise of God? Mm, by faith, believe it's already yours. Do you, um, when you're going through something specific, do you look for maybe a specific promise of God that, that applies to that thing? You know, if you're going through a financial difficulty, man, my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. If you're going through a a difficult relational situation, you know, whatever, you know, forgive as you've been forgiven and things like that, right? Absolutely. Anybody else? One more? Did you raise your hand, John, or were you stretching? Okay. Yeah, awesome. I'm telling you what, guys, there's so many ways, and it's worth us exploring ways and, and maybe even talking with other people. Hey, how do you do this? Right? How does this work for you? How have you, what have you found effective in your life? What a great conversation that would be to be sharing with one another. Hey, here's, here's something that's helped me, right? I think we can talk a lot of theory, but truly when we actually ask, what has worked in your life? How have you bound yourself to God's promise and seen it hold? Which brings us to a third secret of unlocking the power of hope in our lives. And that is that hope is actually, for my grammar nerds in the room, a noun. It's actually, let me take you to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. And in this passage, the writer of Hebrews was discussing the promises that God has, had made to Abraham. And if you remember back in the day, God had promised Abraham some pretty crazy, ridiculous, impossible things. Remember that? He was old. His wife, Sarah, was also pretty old, getting along in age, and it was impossible for them to have children. And yet God had come to them and said, hey, nothing is impossible for me. I want to make you a father and mother of many nations. And so look at the stars in the sky. He took him outside one night. He's like, look at those stars. Can you imagine on a clear night? He says, that's what your descendants will be like. 
And then he told him, as the sand is on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. Can you imagine? And he had obviously a choice, right, to like, do I put my hope in that? Do I believe that promise? Or do I just do what obviously my mind is telling me? This is impossible. Oh, this is dumb. I must have had too much pizza, you know, too, much, too many falafel, you know, the night before. Whatever it might be. So here's what happens in that middle of that discussion. It says, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we, say we, all of us, this is talking to us, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold, as we are bound, intertwined to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us into the curtain or through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. You see, God wants us to understand that his hope in our lives is actually an anchor. Now, don't laugh at this anchor. I know I have some boaters in the room. They're already laughing. This is what you can get in Colorado in December <laughs> at Walmart. <laughs> so, but I actually have, this might not look like much, but I actually have a couple of pictures of some anchors. If you can pull up the first one. You know, we've got huge anchors, right, that weigh tons and tons that literally help stabilize ships. Pull up the next one. This is one of the largest anchors in the world. These can weigh from 65 to 75 tons, all right? Huge anchors for ocean liners. Pull up the third one real quick. Do you see that guy walking around on the chain that holds that anchor? Each one of those links weighs 500 pounds. So think about if you got hit by, a, you know, you have a huge bruise, what happened? Oh, I got hit by a chain, you know. But it was a 500-pound link of a chain. It's crazy. But that's the kind of anchor that God is saying he wants to be at work in our lives. And why do you guys think we need an anchor? Why do we need hope to be an anchor in our life? What do you think? As we set out to bind ourselves to God's promises to give our heart and our soul fully to him, why do you think we need an anchor? Dick? Life is tough. And it's a broken world we live in, and we need that hope mm -hmm. to get us through the hard times. Mm -hmm. Know that uh, good times don't last, neither do bad times. Yeah, absolutely. That's powerful. Life can be very tough. Have you experienced that? Man, sometimes this time of year even exacerbates that. You noticed? Sometimes it picks at the scabs, excuse me, it picks at the scabs of, of those hurts, of that resentment, of that disappointment, of that, you know, broken relationship, of, of that financial strain as we see others around us doing things that we wish we could do maybe for our loved ones. Very true. Somebody else? Why do we need an anchor? Yeah, Scott? Hmm. By ourselves, we're weak and easily distracted. What's something that might distract us, Scott? Oh, any anything of the world. I mean, mm. it's mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 with an anchor, we're we're focused and we're positioned. Hmm. I love that. An anchor 
Obviously, I'm not sure how effective this could be unless it were like on a kayak. <laughs> but uh, one of those anchors that we saw a minute ago, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. It keeps us, right, as we're attached to it, it keeps our nose pointed in the right direction. I mean, the wind might be blowing, the current might be pulling at us, but it keeps us. And when my dad was teaching me how to drive, and perhaps you're, whoever taught you how to drive mentioned this too. Have you noticed that whatever you look towards, you start turning towards? So he's like, whenever a semi-truck passes you, don't look at it because it's like going towards the purple light, you know? <laughs> but you start getting closer and closer because whatever has our attention, whatever we're hoping in, that's what we start moving towards. And when the distractions of this world start coming, it starts getting our nose away from the one that God has called us to be bound together with. Somebody else, why do we need an anchor? Okay, say that again. To keep you from drifting. Okay, and how have you seen that at play? Like what, what, what uh, is an example of drifting in our lives? Um, or what's a, how do you know I you're think drifting? back to troubles, things you know, that we experience in the world, you know, mm. work, mm -hmm. um, just providing for our families, mm -hmm. um, distractions that happen every day, yeah. you know, keeping us focused on truth and, mm -hmm. and plotted. Yeah, absolutely. Have you found that that principle is at work, that drifting pull? Anybody found that? That we set out like, yes, Lord, I'm going to love you. I'm going to hope for your return, Jesus. I'm going to be fully in. But then it's like the world just kind of has this like, it's like being on an escalator when you get up going the wrong way. <laughs> We're like, why am I moving backwards? What's happening? Like at the airport, you know, sometimes I do it just for fun. But that's absolutely true. You know, we don't always realize when it's happening. But drift is happening. We've got to have that anchor to keep us securely locked in the right direction. Yes, Terry. It occurs to me that when the anchor's dropped, you have to be still. Mm. You have to wait. Mm. That's good. When the anchor is dropped, it forces us to be still. Psalm 46 says, be still, be patient, calm down, and know that I am God. I will be exalted on the earth. I will be lifted up among the nations. Wow, what a, what, a, what a powerful invitation to us even this time of year when it feels like, right? I don't know if you guys subscribe to the Babylon Bee. It's a very silly, satirical uh, website that sends you emails, but it said on, on Friday morning, one of their little blurbs as well, Americans in an act of repentance for being thankful, immediately turn the next day to mobbing and looting at 5 a.m., you know, something like that. <laughs> Repent, like, oh, we were thankful. We need to get away from that. Let's go back to, <laughs> but the point is, right, it, it, it forces us to calm down and to think about truly what is important, what is valuable, saying no to some things, maybe even this holiday season that are good things, but that are not truly where the life of God is at. I believe God wants us to have the freedom to follow his spirit, knowing what to say no to, what to say yes to, how he's leading us, how he wants to make this meaningful. Maybe one more? Yes, Mason. Almost uh, in contrast to that, um, in that verse that you were talking about that said that hope was an anchor, it's immediate afterthought is it leads. Mm. Um, and so... Mm -hmm. Like, I just imagine, like, if Jesus is at the end of that anchor pulling it, mm -hmm. you know, you're forced to move, too. Yes, and yes. so your hope can cause you to be still, but there are also times where it almost forces you into action or it, you're led by it. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like a contrary thought, but... Yeah, maybe like a jet-powered anchor. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it just it's forces you. It forces you into movement sometimes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. I'm telling you what, 
we need an anchor, don't we? And here's something I want you to know. Um, it says an anchor for what? An anchor, anybody remember? Without them putting it back up there. What? An anchor for our soul. Why wouldn't it say an anchor for our spirit? Because, you know, if you've been like a pastor's kid or in church ever since, you know, as long as I have, you know, it's like, oh, we talk about spiritual things at church, right? Man, it's our spirit that gets born again. Bless God. Hallelujah. Do I have a witness in the house? Okay. You know, we talk a lot about our spirit, and that's where things start typically, right? With our faith. But here it doesn't say an anchor for our spirit. It says an anchor for our soul. What's the meaning of that? You want to know what I think? I think God is saying, hey, I don't just care about your spirit. Sometimes, you know, there's this false belief that, well, you know, I'm born again and my spirit's up here with God and, you know, my feelings and my emotions and all my soul and my, even sometimes my thoughts and all that, well, they're down here struggling with my flesh and the world. But, you know, what? my spirit is good. It's with God. And God's saying, no, that's not the fullness of what I have for you. I actually created you body, soul, and spirit. That word for soul, nephesh, the same word that's used in Genesis when God breathed into men and women, into their nostrils, and they became a living being, a living soul. And it implies your unique personality. It implies uh, your, your hunger, your appetites come from the soul. Literally where you're hungry and feel thirst. Even can be where you lust from, a deep desire. That can come from the soul. The soul is the seed of our emotions, it's our affections. It's what we daydream about. It's what we think about. It's what we, what we, do you see how that could be so important that God says, hey, I don't just want hope to live in your spirit where it's like, oh yes, I know that technically Jesus will come back and so yes, I'm a Christian, okay. But it's like, no, he's like, I want this to seep out of your spirit and get all over the place inside of you, right? It's kind of like the reverse of cancer. Cancer, how many of you guys know? It can seep out and metastasize, right? And get all over the place and make a mess, Right? But hope is the opposite. It's the life-giving force of God that he's saying it starts in your spirit when you attach yourself to my promises and to my word and you believe that I'm who I say I am. Guess what? It starts seeping out into your emotions. It starts seeping out into what you daydream about. It starts seeping out into the things that you, that you look forward to, the things that bring you joy. That word nefesh is even what brings you pleasure. Think about that. God is like, I want to be all, all up in that, all of it body, soul, spirit. I want all of you. I made all of you as good. I, I love your body. I love your soul, your emotions, your thoughts, your affections, your appetites, and I love your spirit. And I have a plan so that that hope is like an anchor, but it seeps into the entire being of who you are. Is that encouraging? That encourages me that God has thought about, because oftentimes our feelings can be a problem, right? Like we don't, we don't decide, oh, I'm going to feel discouraged today. I think today's a good day for hopelessness. No, you know, it, it just happens, doesn't it? It just happens. Anxiety just happens. We don't ask for it, but it happens. It, it kind of comes to us. We don't look for it. But God is saying, I love you. I, I've got a plan. Hope, my hope in you is an anchor for even those emotions and even your soul, not just to get you through Advent season, but every day of your life. Here's something really cool. Rick Warren uh, put together a list. He actually wrote a book on hope. It's called The Hope You Need. The Hope You Need. And if, if some of you are really just either struggling or, or feeling like, man, I really want to go deeper in, in how God's hope is activated in my life, I encourage you to go and get that book. Um, but he actually, as a process of researching for that, he uh, found, tried to find out what the top drivers of hopelessness are in our world. 
And he put together a list of that in that book. And I wanted to share that with you because I think it's relevant. He said this, and these are in no particular order, but number one, when we feel alone or abandoned. Number two, when life seems out of control or that our current situation is never gonna change. Number three, we don't see a purpose. So we feel the pain, but we don't see a reason and a purpose in the midst of that pain. Number four, we're grieving a loss. I know for a fact there's some of us in this room that have experienced a loss this year, and maybe you're feeling that more poignantly than ever before right now. Number five, you don't have what you need. Financial lack or even friendship or family around us, whatever it might be. Number six, we've done something wrong and we feel the guilt and shame of that. That can bring hopelessness. Number seven, we're deeply, we've been deeply wounded by someone. That can bring hopelessness because we just feel that, that pain and that sting and don't know how to get around it. Number eight, we feel pulled in the wrong direction. Man, maybe there's someone here today that there's a temptation, there's, a, there's something that you know is from the enemy in your life and it's gotten in there and you don't know how to like cut it off and how to be free of it. And maybe it's destroying your soul or destroying your marriage or destroying your future, or destroying the plans of God and the purposes of God in your life. That can bring hopelessness, can't it? What about number nine? We're hounded by fear or anxiety. I know a lot of people this time of year, you know? It's just that, it's like, how is this gonna work, man? I, I, I just, I wish I was completely somewhere else, but yet I'm, I'm stuck here and I'm anxious. Number 10, it looks like defeat. We feel like we're on the losing side. You know what um, Rick Warren found, I believe the Lord showed him this, is that he actually found that the Lord's prayer addresses every one of those 10 top drivers. And this research was done not trying to be cute and like, okay, it was literally like, hey, let's research thousands of people, figure out what their top drivers of hopelessness are. But he goes into it, and I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna very quickly share this with you. He says, when we're alone and abandoned, our father, we're not alone, we're not abandoned. We are sons and daughters who are loved. When life seems out of control, you're in heaven. You are Lord over all. You are, as we read in Psalm 40, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You've got power to change this. When you don't see a purpose, your kingdom come. Man, I'm, I'm actually a part of your kingdom being built. Man, that's, I can recenter my whole life around a purpose that matters. When I'm grieving a loss, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound like Jesus in Gethsemane? Not my will, but your will be done? He was getting ready to not just experience a loss, actually give his life. But we can say, Lord, this hurts. God, I know you're with me in it. God, your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. What about this one? You don't have what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. God, you're my provider. God, my hope is in you. God, even if this Christmas might not have as many presents under the tree, but Lord, you're faithful. God, provide for us. Let us be truly grateful for what we do have and for each other. What about this? You've done something wrong. Lead us not into temptation. That can be a powerful prayer that sets us free and gives us hope in that. Deeply wounded by someone, uh, I forgive, right? Those who have sinned against me. Uh, you've done something wrong, forgive us our debts, right? Lord, you're the one that forgives. You're the one that restores. You don't hold our sins against us. What about being pulled in the wrong direction? Lead us not into temptation. Thank you, Lord, that you're the one that sets me free from evil. Hounded by fear and anxiety, 
deliver us from evil. Deliver me from the enemy's plan to make me hopeless. When it looks like defeat, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. You are the winner. I've read the end of the book, as Pastor John would always say, and we win. We come out on top. So maybe that's a little tool for us. If you find yourself struggling with hopelessness in any one of those areas, maybe go back to that Lord's Prayer. We talked about it a few weeks ago in our series on prayers in the New Testament. But maybe begin to reflect and meditate, do those things we've talked about earlier, and find hope in the midst of that thing. So as we close today, I wanted to circle back. We've talked about the reality that hope is only as strong as the person making the promise that we're putting our hope in. We've talked about the fact that it's a choice that we can make, that we can choose actively, not just once and for all, but every day to renew that attachment, that binding of ourselves to Jesus, the one who's made those promises to us. And we've learned that that hope, when we do that, becomes an anchor to our soul, that it actually has a way of ministering to our emotions, seeping out into our thoughts, seeping into our desires, seeping into our priorities, literally changing us from the inside out. But I want to go back for a second as we close to the Jewish betrothal. And we talked about the fact that the groom makes right down those promises for the bride and that she, when she chooses to believe and to hope in his word that he's trustworthy and is going to do what he says he's going to do, then she drinks that from that goblet of wine. And then that there's this period of separation where he's gone to prepare a place and so he's, you know, building that place for her. And guess what she's doing during that time? She's sewing her wedding dress. She's making herself ready. She's beautifying herself. And guess what both of them, each of them separately are doing? They're looking forward in anticipation. They're hoping for the day when they will come together as one. And each of them is dreaming about the other. And each of them is like, you know, he's like, this is where the kitchen will be. This is where the toilet will be. This is where the bed will be. You know, whatever it might be, right? I mean, the groom is anticipating, the, the bride is like, you know, actually back in that day, probably more like, you know, by hand, you know. But, you know, she's, you know, oh, he's going to love, you know, this lace and this little whatever, this veil and this part and this flower, you know, right? You know, and there's this anticipation. Can you, can you just put yourself in their shoes for a second as they're loving each other, as their love is growing, as they're hoping for that day? And that's what happens at the very end is that when the time is right, and check this out, guess who decides when the time is right for the groom to go get his bride? You think it's the groom? No, because as Pastor John said many times, he would just put up a couple of two-by-fours, piece of plywood. We're done. We're ready. Woo-hoo! Coming to get you, dear. No, it's the father of the groom. The father of the groom decides when it is satisfactory, when the place has been prepared, and then he tells the son, son, good job. You've done great. Go get your bride. The bride is in expectation. She doesn't know exactly when it's going to happen, but she knows around that year mark, like any day now, she's got her dress ready. It's clean. It's pressed. She's ready at a moment's notice to be ready to go with the groom. And so that's that second part or that third part, I guess, if you will, of, of the betrothal part in the Jewish tradition is that when the father says, it's time, go get your bride. I'm sure he's not like, okay, yeah, whatever. He's like, okay. Let's go. <laughs> he runs to her house with his entourage. He knocks on the door. She's ready. She's expecting him. And he takes her, and that Hebrew word means literally to carry, 
where he carries his bride, at least for a portion of the way, depending on numerous factors. <laughs> the distance and other factors. Anyway, but he carries his bride. It doesn't matter. He loves her. She's the jewel of his eye. She's the desire of his heart. He carries her back to that place where they can enjoy the beauty of marriage bliss together. Listen to the words of John 14 and see if you hear in this a promise of a bridegroom. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Can you see him working Adnan to the father's house? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I'm telling you what, if we literally hear, I believe that God wants us to hear the bridegroom's voice as he's speaking to each one of us. Hey, I love you. I'm preparing a place for you. I can't wait. I'm hoping for this day. It's not just that he's saying we should hope. Jesus is like, oh man, come on, Father. Is it time yet? He's looking forward in anticipation to having us be with him where he is. And I believe that his desire as we think about Advent, about the coming of Jesus. In fact, that word Advent is just a Latin word for the Greek word parousia. Guess what word is used in the second coming of Christ? Parousia. It's that word of the coming again of Jesus. So he's saying, man, I hope you're as excited as I am that I'm preparing a place. I hope you know how much I love you. I hope that, that you're working on your garments. Revelation speaks of the bride given garments of, of, of uh, I totally spaced out. I'm not a design. Anyway, in chapter 19, you can look it up. Chapter 19 of Revelation, I think it's satin or silk or something. Uh, but the bride's been given garments to wear and they symbolize the good works, like the things that we do as we're waiting for him, how we share his hope with others and how our heart is turned in love and expectation for him. I'm telling you what, Jesus is saying, come away with me. I'm gonna read one last verse and then I'll pray. This is from Song of Solomon, chapter two. Maybe close your eyes and listen to this, the groom's voice. My beloved spoke and said to me, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one. Come with me. God, I thank you so much that you are calling to each one of us to come away with you. That, Lord, even as we find ourselves in this period in the middle, between where you've already made your promises to us, all 7,000 of them in scripture. God, when you've promised to come and return for us and you've come to take us with you where you are, but Lord, as we await for that fullness of the marriage to be complete and the banquet, the wedding supper of the lamb to begin, God, I pray that your hope would be alive in us. I pray that you would quicken it. I pray you would minister to every soul I pray you would lift us up and just let us hear your whisper captivating our imagination, captivating our hearts, causing us to look away from the distractions of this world 
and look once again into your eyes as we await your coming. Lord, let us be set apart. Whoever has this hope purifies himself, your word says, or herself. Lord, let us purify ourselves in this hope. Let us share it with others. Let us be Jesus to others in need, even as we await for you. I thank you for it all in the precious name of Jesus, your son. Amen.